This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Nick Parry. Nick is a PhD candidate based at the Australia-German Climate and Energy College at the University of Melbourne. He joined me to talk about his new article, which explores the European Union and Australia's climate and energy policies, as well as how it may affect diplomatic relations and future trade agreements. I'm really delighted to have with me in the studio Nick Parry, who is a PhD candidate at the Australian-German Climate and Energy College based at the University of Melbourne. Um, He has since submitted his PhD, so I'm gathering it's being assessed as we speak, uh, which is all very exciting. And Nick joins me because he's uh, published a number of pieces recently, one of which um, is a journal article and looks at uh, the the European Union and Australia's climate change and energy policies and uh, the history of those, recent history of those, how they differ and also how it might uh, affect trade agreements and these kind of relations, diplomatic relations and political relations and potentially economic relations between these two blocks that we probably don't really consider all that often. It's You don't often see the EU as being a really critical um, part of Australia's foreign relations strategy, but the EU is a very large economic block which um, does a huge amount of trade and is very powerful, certainly in the world. So I welcome Nick now and thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you to talk about this subject and also um, great because I saw your articles on the Pursuit website, uh, which is Melbourne University's own kind of research hub with op-eds um, and was also fascinating fascinated by some of the subjects you've written about previously on uh, the British Conservative Party and also the Labor Party and how they had approached climate change, which seems to be something that Australia can often be referenced with. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's quite sane in the UK, yeah. the, uh, the, the climate debate relative to Australia, of course. And I think people who perhaps don't have an understanding of how the UK climate politics has unfolded would be quite surprised. Uh, particularly given that the Conservative Party has been one of the drivers of a very ambitious climate policy, which is obviously quite the opposite to Australia. Yeah. So even going back to Margaret Thatcher, uh, in the early 90s, she gave uh, a number of very strong speeches on, on climate change. I think before she died, she became a climate uh, sceptic, but <laughs> whilst in power, she did implement uh, so, or initiated a number of, uh, of policies. Mm. Uh, but there was a particular change in the UK from about 2005 onwards, uh, when David Cameron became the opposition leader. Uh, and you then had sort of party competition between uh, between the Labor and Conservative parties. Uh, the Labor Party under Blair was actually in danger of being outflanked by both the Conservatives and, and the Greens, uh, which also drove greater ambition amongst, uh, amongst the, the Labor government at the time. Mm. So a, a very, very different situation to what we have in, in Australia, where you've got two parties who are fundamentally opposed. Uh, in, in the UK, you've actually got very broad agreement on, on the fact that climate change is real. Uh, and that uh, we need to take very serious action. Mm. And um, thinking about the the British UK Labor Party, clearly coal mining was a very important part of Britain a number of decades ago, and uh, we saw some you know really serious disasters happen. One in Wales, um, I recall, a number of decades ago, and so coal and coal mining was a part of Britain at one point. It's not like they did not have that kind of legacy. 
um, of coal. Australia has clearly a legacy of coal too. Some might say it's on a different scale, but what is your understanding of Britain's legacy and potentially even Germany's legacy of coal mining compared with ours? Yeah, look, if you're going to compare the UK with Australia, you have to recognise that Australia is, uh, I think, the world's largest exporter of coal and, and of natural gas, whereas the UK, which was once described as an island of coal on a sea of gas, uh, <laughs> that's no longer the case. Yeah. Uh, when Thatcher smashed the, uh, the coal unions in the early 80s, uh, coal mining had already been in decline for probably two decades. Mm. And even gas, the UK has some significant gas reserves in the, in the North Sea, but uh, they're a net importer of gas and have been since 2005. So you have to recognise that there are very different politics in relation to, to coal and, and natural resources. It's still very important to Australia. It's still very influential in our politics. Yeah. Whereas the UK have been able to transition away from uh, coal and, and more recently gas because uh, they just don't have those natural resources. So you don't have mm. the influence in politics. And what about Germany? Because I know that they've they announced um, nuclear energy was you know going to be transitioned away um, from and also that they have also had that relationship with coal mining and open cut mines and kind of above ground mining as well as some of the underground mines. What's their experience been like? Yeah, so again, Germany does not have the coal resources that we have, Mm. uh, but there are pockets particularly in the east of the country and parts of the country that are perhaps economically depressed. Uh, so it is still very, very important. And uh, what you actually saw in Germany, they have a very um, significant policy, the Energiewende, which is this energy transition plan, uh, where they're obviously transitioning away from uh, from fossil fuels. It actually, the policy actually started as an anti-nuclear policy in the 1980s. Uh, so there's always been this sort of anti-nuclear um, sentiment in, in German politics. Um so they announced the shutdown of, of nuclear after Fukushima uh, disaster in, in Japan. And what you actually saw was uh, coal actually increased very, very slightly and, and, and emissions and electricity actually uh, plateaued or even increased very slightly in, in Germany uh, because they were still depending on coal. But what Germany has done now is implement the Coal Commission. So they're now uh, implementing a managed shutdown of, of the coal industry uh, over the next, uh, I think it's out to 2038, uh, so this is probably very typical of Germany to have a very long-term <laughs> and very structured plan, but it's, it's a plan that it, it involves workers, it involves uh, the energy businesses, it involves policymakers as well. They get them all together and they actually look at, okay, what are the implications for, for workers, what are the implications for energy supply, and, uh, and they're able to manage that. Whereas obviously in Australia, it's, um, we're still assuming that coal is going to have a role well out to 2050, which yeah. if you take the Paris Agreement seriously, it absolutely will not. Mm. Uh, and so we, I think we can learn a lot from, from Germany, in, in particular the way they're managing this, uh, this transition. It's not without its problems. It's not perfect, obviously. Uh, but at least they're taking the, that that problem very seriously. Yes. Well, we did see uh, the Labor leader, Anthony Albanese, over the weekend get asked about coal and Australia's export of coal and whether we might still be exporting our own coal in 2050, and to which he said yes, which is kind of surprising, as you've probably just referenced and shown why it is really, really quite surprising. 
there is this, uh, I guess, cognitive dissonance between we want to act on climate change in some of these parties, I'm not going to say all, um, where, you know, there is this commitment and we've seen an announcement from Labor about having a net zero target um, on carbon emissions by 2050, but then a, a real kind of soft denial of how we get there and the fact that coal can't really play a role if we wanted to reach the target that we've set? Yeah, that's, I mean... Oh, the Labor Party doesn't know what it wants to do at the moment, which is somewhat yeah. understandable given they've just lost an election mm. which was which was billed as the, the climate election. So they're certainly being uh, hammered on, on their, their policy. But, yeah, there's a, there's a real inconsistency there because Australia has signed up to the Paris Agreement, which commits uh, signatories to keeping global warming to well below 2 degrees by, 2050, uh, by the end of the century. That requires decarbonisation by 2050. That means you're not using coal anymore. And yet the Labor Party sort of wants to walk both sides of the street. They want to say, mm. yes, there's still a role for this industry in, in this country. But they've got to be real. They've, they've, they've actually got to talk to the people who are affected, the people who are going to lose their jobs and actually manage this transition because yep. it's inevitable. Mm. And as you've just shown there, it has been done in Germany that that kind of collaborative, open, direct approach of making sure that every group of affected people are involved in this policy, it seems like it's something that's pretty vital to actually making it a success. Yeah, absolutely it is, yeah. And look, if you look at the economy-wide implications of the transition, there are lots and lots of opportunities. And when you look back at any great transition, you know, perhaps horse and cart to the automobile, no one talks about all the job losses in, in you know, horse cart making. They, they talk about mm. uh, what, what a great technological revolution it was. And, and we'll talk about the energy transition in the same way. But you also have to recognise that there are individual workers and individual communities who are going to suffer. You know, I personally, I actually used to work in the automotive industry and I watched that decline in this country and I watched people lose their jobs, uh, high-paying, unionised jobs. Uh, and so, you know, as people who, who are great proponents of, of ambitious climate policy, we have to recognise that these communities uh, will be affected. Um, but if that's the case and you also have the reality of decarbonising our economy, then you have to manage that transition as, as best you can. You can't get to 2035 or 2040 and suddenly have a whole heap of job losses and no. and let these people suffer. You have to explain the reality of the situation to them, and that, that's what's happening in Germany. Explain the reality, bring them along and, and, and include them in, in that process, and you'll have a much, a much smoother transition, I think. Yeah, and in your article which uh, has been recently published, you go through the history of the EU and Australia's climate interactions with these international agreements. Mm -hmm. And um, you highlight the Kyoto Protocol as being the first international treaty for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, which of course was in 1997. And it's nice to, I guess, be reminded what Australia was doing in the Kyoto Protocol negotiations because sometimes we forget. And I was interested in the line you wrote about Australia being regarded as a major obstacle to the agreement, exploiting the need for consensus to hold out for preferential treatment, which seems like we haven't really changed our behaviour all that much when we talk about carryover credits, which are also relating to the Kyoto Protocol. But what did we end up negotiating in Kyoto that has since had ongoing effects for all of our subsequent targets and our subsequent international agreements? Yeah, so the, the Kyoto Protocol uh, was obviously aimed at reducing emissions amongst industrialised countries. And uh, so the EU agreed to an 8% reduction in 
reduction. The US, I think, was was seven or eight. All industrial uh, countries agreed to some sort of reduction. Australia held out. Famously, they held out and said, uh, no, we're very dependent on resources, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And Australia ended up winning an exception. They ended up uh, being allowed to increase uh, emissions by about 8%, I think, uh, on, on 1990 levels. So um, I think uh, there was an EU commissioner who said that Australia had gotten away with it. I mean, the EU at the time was was quite furious with Australia's actions, but Australia was seen as quite small and mm. uh, they didn't want the agreement to falter uh, because of Australia's veto. So the agreement was signed. Australia got this uh, essentially a concession. Now, all these years later, uh, having won that concession, we're now trying to use that again by using these these carryover credits. So essentially what we're saying is, well, we, we had a soft target with Kyoto. We achieved that soft target. And now we're going to take those credits from that agreement and apply it to the Paris Agreement. Uh, that is causing uh, you know, quite a bit of angst amongst uh, uh, EU negotiators in particular. And uh, it, it's something that's been raised uh, in, in recent, uh, recent months in particular. Yes. Well, is it any wonder, I guess, when there's such a big double standard and Australia is a very rich and wealthy nation and of course we do have a dependency on resources and we had the mining boom um, really run our economy for a very long time and have we had that reliance I guess on that sector Mm -hmm. as well as manufacturing which has since uh, slowly died but it's interesting to see how the European Union has been approaching climate change both historically but how it's also progressed the issue I mean, a lot of people might think it's difficult with a block of such a large number of European countries of very different political persuasions coming together and actually agreeing on some particularly progressive and radical changes. We just did see an announcement of a European Green Deal, which some people criticise and say doesn't go far enough and then others say... Is, is a good starting point. What is your understanding of how the EU has developed its climate policy in that time from Kyoto to present day? You know, the EU has always been quite progressive and certainly a leader in global climate politics. Uh, it, it took the most uh, significant emissions reduction target to Kyoto and then when the US failed to ratify it, it, it worked very, very hard to get Russia over the line to ensure that the, uh, the, uh, the agreement came into effect. Uh, again, at uh, in, in 2009 at Copenhagen, they, they took a very uh, ambitious target. Um, that Those talks failed because of China and the US, but then the EU worked very hard behind the scenes to ensure that uh, the US and China came to an agreement before uh, the negotiations at Paris. So a year before that, China and the US uh, came to an agreement, which signaled to everyone else that, that uh, they were very serious about climate action. So the EU has always played a very important diplomatic role and, and, and a leadership role as well. It's Again, it's, it's not always perfect. So you mentioned the uh, the Green Deal that, that has been announced, um, but the EU is trying to negotiate a net zero target for 2050. They were hoping to finalise it by the end of last year, but it's being held up by Poland. Poland is still very dependent upon uh, coal, much as Australia is. So yeah. when you talk about that need for consensus amongst what is now 27 member states, um, Normally, uh, there's sort of there's enough pressure from other member states. There's enough negotiating behind the scenes to, to reach an agreement. At this stage, they haven't reached the agreement. Mm. But that that green deal that they've announced, part of that is is essentially uh, an incentive for Poland to come on board. Uh, they haven't yet done that. They're, they're looking for more money. But eventually, I'm, I'm sure that, that Poland will agree. 
with the right amount of uh, in- incentives and the, and the right amount of uh, EU funds to, to smooth the transition in, in Poland. Mm. And then they'll have a, a 2050 target, hopefully. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was just thinking about a previous conversation I had where um, Poland was taken to court by client earth around the primeval forests that they also did not want to protect and they were one of the oldest forests in the world that were untouched. So um, Poland has some ongoing environmental issues domestically as well as uh, politically at the EU level that come to mind. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to compare Australia, certainly the UK, we're very similar in, in, in terms of our politics and our, and our outlook, but in terms of our dependence on coal and how that influences our, our climate policies, Poland is probably a very interesting uh, comparative case study. That is really interesting. Um, I hope that's in the works, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Be very, very fascinating. Um, So in terms of the Green Deal that has been announced, I I think I'd like to understand it a bit better because we've seen uh, people like Bernie Sanders advocate for a Green New Deal in America. We've seen people domestically here like Adam Bant talk about a Green New Deal. This is not um, just isolated to one area of the world what does the european idea or iteration of a green deal look like yeah it's it's actually interesting how fast this idea has has taken hold and 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 spread and does show the the potential for climate policy the big ideas in in climate politics to uh to spread um but yeah so if you you look at the uh, the eu in particular a a new european commission was elected uh in uh, november of last year uh and Obviously, the, the commission to, to be approved by the European Parliament has to make lots of concessions to lots of different people. And uh, one of them, uh, to the, the Greens Party, I suppose, but also to those, those eastern states who are, who are very dependent on, on coal still, uh, was this, this idea of a, of a Green Deal. Uh, so this is you know, putting a lot of um, uh, public funding, European public funding and leveraging private funding as well, into the uh, the transition, particularly in the energy sector, uh, away from fossil fuels. Obviously, you're going to see a lot of transfers from from Western Europe to, to Eastern Europe to smooth that uh, that, that transition. Um, as I said, not a perfect policy, not a perfect announcement by by any stretch, but certainly very significant that this idea that's probably only two or three years old uh, is is now being adopted by the European Commission and being proposed as a very, very serious policy over the next seven years. Yeah, and the really, I guess, unique part about that is that it is encompassing so many parts of policy areas. It's um, it's not just environment as a separate category, policy category that we're going to work on. It's the fact and recognising the fact that economics and social policy and other areas of policy are all drawn up and brought up into this issue of reducing carbon emissions and um, protecting the environment. Yeah, this is this is such a complex problem: climate change and the energy transition. You you cannot address it, uh, you know, through one ministry or one directorate in, in the EU's case. You you have to in- incorporate all of these different uh, perspectives. Um, you know, the social, the economic, the legal, and the technical, obviously. And 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 the EU, again, it, it, it's not perfect, and and often uh, economics will trump uh, climate change as it does in, in every single country. But you know certainly relative to Australia, they're much better at incorporating all these considerations into their policy. Mm. And um, what is particularly interesting is the fact that, and I'm sure some many listeners would have a, a good enough memory to remember that Australia had what was characterised as a carbon tax, which wasn't really. Um, the EU has an emissions trading scheme and it's had one uh, for 15 years, mm-hmm. which is phenomenal. How has that 
trading scheme worked in the EU. And I note from your piece that you said it was actually intended to link up with the Australian carbon price in 2018. That's right, yeah. So it was the first international emissions trading system. It was launched in 2005 in Europe. Um, And for a very long time, it didn't work. Uh, The mechanism was fine, but because of, you know, these political uh, negotiations, there were too many concessions, essentially. And, uh, and the ETS had very little effect uh, for, for most of its life. But it's gone through a series of reforms uh, recently. So essentially, they've put a, sort of a number of cap on the, on the number of permits that are allowed in the market. And that has sent a very clear signal to the, uh, to the market. So it is starting to work now. So where you had uh, carbon prices at between zero and five euro, they've now hit about uh, 25 euro, which is about 40 Australian dollars. Uh, and it, it's really starting to have an effect. Now, Australia, when it proposed its own ETS, uh, has said they were to link to the uh, the European scheme uh, by 2018. Mm-hmm. We all know the history of, of what <laughs> happened there in this country. It never, never happened. Um, and I think that's a missed opportunity uh, for Australia. We had, you know, quite significant opportunities for, for carbon abatement. We could have tapped into that international market and you could have we could have had... Uh, farmers in this country making you know reasonable amounts of money from that uh, that, that carbon market it didn't happen lost opportunity yes and the carbon price um, the price on carbon so many ways to describe it in Australia uh, was shown to be effective in reducing emissions and I've seen a number of graphs where you see this great uh, reduction and then a very steep change when we uh, removed this mm-hmm. policy in terms of Australia's current policy or default policy it's hard to explain I guess what our position is but where are we at in terms of our approach to reducing carbon emissions if we don't have a price on carbon in Australia yeah I mean carbon price is often seen by economists as the best option Um, obviously we uh, rescinded our carbon price very unlikely it's going to come back in in the near future potentially it will uh, some some way down the path so we really don't have a, a federal emissions reduction policy at the moment. The emissions reduction fund is not a particularly effective uh, policy. It's, it's a very expensive way of, of achieving carbon abatement. And I, I just don't see how we're going to drive emissions down there. Uh, our emissions fell, I think, in, in the most recent quarter, primarily due to the drought, which which drew agricultural um, emissions down. We're, we're increasing our uh, renewable energy, which is bringing our energy emissions down very, very slightly, but none of that is really being driven by federal policy. Mm. If if you're looking for some hope, and I always am, yes. and you have to in this game, uh, then you, you know, at the state level, there's, there's quite significant activity. So each state and territory in Australia now has a net zero target for 2050. They don't necessarily have 2030 targets, which are, which are essential you mm. know, on that pathway to 2050, but that's actually something that we have that, that Europe doesn't have, or the EU doesn't have quite yet. Lots of uh, European countries do have it, but we, we don't at the moment. So th- there is some optimism, I think, at the state level with, with strong um, renewable energy targets, for instance, and, and, and 2050 targets, that most of the, uh, the emissions reductions will occur at that, that level. But obviously you can't uh, achieve the, the decarbonisation of your economy without a federal policy, and that's what we're lacking at the moment. Yes, exactly. And the interesting element is that there are not just Labor states, uh, state government, but obviously coalition governments having a 2050 net zero policy mm. at the state level. Yeah, well, the, as I say, lots of people that our 
climate politics at the federal level is actually not normal. And, and perhaps we've accepted it as normal. We've just assumed that, you know, the conservative parties are opposed to climate action, uh, when in reality it's a sort of a small rump of the, of the coalition government. Uh, conservatives in Europe, you know, in, in Germany and the UK, as I mentioned, they're the ones who have driven really strong climate action. And they see protection of the environment as part of that, that conservative tradition. You even see that in, in New South Wales, in, in, in Australia, uh, to some extent in other states and, and territories as well. But it's not necessarily normal for a conservative party just to oppose uh, climate action. Um, in, in lots of places in the world, Australia is an exception, obviously the US is an exception, but in most places... In Europe, conservative parties are very strong on, on climate ambition. Mm. And when we've been looking at EU and Australia relations, one of the uh, things that have come up in the news recently was the EU, did they pass legislation about how they, I guess, conduct trade with other nations and how climate change is a factor in those relations and negotiations? Yeah, there's no, no legislation at this stage, but... It, it, it's something that's um, being mentioned more and more. And, and it's Australia began negotiations with the EU about 18 months ago, which in itself was really significant because yeah. EU-Australia relations have always been shaped by this antagonism over agriculture. So we finally seem to have gotten over that. We've, we've started these uh, negotiations um, and they're, they're sort of progressing quite nicely. But there's been a very noticeable shift in the EU's attitudes towards Australia in relation to, to climate change uh, in recent years. Um, the, the FTA negotiations are one trigger. Uh, our behaviour at the, at the recent um, uh, COP meeting, where we essentially insisted that we're going to use these carryover credits from, from Kyoto, and we essentially held up the agreement along with Brazil and, and, and Russia. Our, our behaviour wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't regarded very highly, certainly by our, our um, EU partners. And then, obviously, the bushfires had an effect as well. It's amazing how many mm. people from Europe uh, were emailing me about the bushfires. What's happening in Australia? This is the first time that they've seen Australia on the news in five years, and yeah. it's all about, all about climate change. So increasingly, you're seeing EU policymakers uh, talk about including a very strong provision on, on the Paris Agreement in these uh, FTA negotiations. And that could be very bad for Australia. Uh, it, it depends on how hard they, that they push it. And it depends on whether it, it, it can be included. You know, there's a, a lot to run yet, uh, but it, it is very interesting that uh, that's being mentioned so often. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It wouldn't be as notable if Australia was on track to meet its Paris climate targets. And uh, in Parliament, we've seen some discussion about climate change more recently with Zali Stegel, one of the independent MPs, raising a bill and also uh, asking our Prime Minister Scott Morrison about climate change and the cost of inaction and she highlighted that Australia is more likely or is on track to make three degrees warming rather than the Paris target which is substantially less than three degrees is really catastrophic. With this discussion that we are having about the cost of action versus the cost of inaction, to some people and observers it seems like a rather ridiculous conversation because it requires a huge amount of crystal ball gazing out to decades um, and an understanding flow-on effects and interrelations between sectors that we may not fully understand. How do you approach that dichotomy or that argument that's set up and that has been playing out in our federal politics about – 
the cost and whether we can tell what the cost is and um, whether it's more beneficial economically to act or not act. Yeah, this is again an interesting comparison with the EU where the the debate is always framed around opportunities. Uh, and again, because they're a net energy importer, so they're dependent on, on imports of their energy, there's obviously an incentive uh, to transition away from, from those imported fossil fuels. But mm. whenever you read about climate policy in, in the EU from the official documents, it's always about these are the opportunities in terms of jobs, in terms of innovation, in terms of export. You know, they've got more patents in renewable energy than any other country. The rates of deployment are, are higher. Perhaps China has caught up recently. But there's real progress. Whereas in Australia, we talk about cost. We're always talking about cost. Mm. We never consider what the opportunities are, and we never consider what the costs of inaction are. What does Australia look like at three degrees? It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty horrible. You know, this is the driest inhabited continent on, on the planet, and, and you know, climate change is going to kick us in the backside you know, harder than any other country, I think. In fact, there was a report, I think, uh, from, from Tom Compass at the uh, University of Melbourne recently, which suggests the, co- the ratio of, of costs of inaction is 20 to 1, uh, which is extraordinary. Yeah, you know, that the, is massive. Yeah, and, and you know, we just don't understand that. We, we, we're still looking at sort of two or three-year timeframes rather than 50-year timeframes mm. and, and the consequence and the costs of that. Yes, and that uh, conservative risk-averse approach and also a status quo approach really, it's not just applied to climate change, it's applied to other areas of economic transformation where we're assuming that resources and other parts of the sector are still going to power us along enough to minusculely grow our economy where people have been saying for a very long time that we need to diversify the economy and to, as you've just said, uh, look at the opportunity which would be around science and research and development and innovation because Australia was a pioneer in some of the early elements of renewable energy and solar or in particular. Where are some of those greatest opportunities for Australia in terms of renewable energy and being part of that intellectual element? Yeah, well, I mean, we obviously have great research institutions in, in this country, great scientists, so there's great opportunity there. We have some of the best solar and wind resources in the world, uh, absolutely abundant sun and wind, uh, mm. and we could be utilising that one. And, and sort of the, the, the buzz at the moment is around hydrogen uh, yes. and, and the potential to create green hydrogen using excess renewable energy, which is, uh, and we had a symposium with some German policymakers last year, and I can't quite remember the figures, but they were astronomical, the amount of hydrogen that they're going to require uh, to decarbonise their energy system. And they're looking to Australia to produce that. So this is a huge export opportunity. We, we're, we're starting to talk about it a, a little bit, but it's something that we could be exploiting. But yeah. Yeah, as I said, we, our, our politics can't get past coal and, and gas. And, and the reality is the world is going to turn off those those products. Again, if, if we take those Paris uh, targets seriously, the market for those is going to fall out and, mm. and we're going to be stuck uh, trying to produce something that no one wants uh, if we don't manage this transition over a sort of 30-year period. Yeah, yeah. Nick, just finally, before we have to, to go... In terms of what's next for the EU, what's on the horizon for the EU? And I've noticed a growth in um, offshore wind power as being one of those elements. But what what does that look like for the European Union in terms of renewable energy and changing their economy? Yeah, well, so the, the EU has, has always been more progressive than, than any other country in the world or any other bloc, obviously. Uh, and they've they've met and they've beaten their targets genuinely, not like Australia where we use these carryover credits and, and use these little cheats. But 
Uh, and, and so if you look at that, they set 10-year uh, targets. So they've got 2020 targets, which they're going to meet. 2030, uh, they're increasing the ambition of those from emissions reduction target of 40 to 55%. And then they're negotiating the, the net 50, uh, the net zero uh, target by 2050. So mm. I, I think they're, they're very, very serious about that, uh, that, that transition. They will likely decarbonise their uh, energy system much earlier than certainly Australia and other major economies. So that, that can potentially create opportunities for a country like Australia. Um, at the moment, we don't recognise those opportunities and, and we're not exploiting them. Yeah. Nick, it's been very illuminating to speak with you about this and I'm so glad that I have a, a greater understanding now of the European Union and its role in the global climate change talks and I guess, policy progression. It's clear that we wouldn't be here without them, really, as a, as a whole global community. Yeah, yeah. If I can finish, yes, too, by yeah. uh, just giving a plug to the Climate College where I work. So we're very very big on making our research accessible to, to the wider public. So we hold a weekly seminar, seminar series. Yep. yep. Uh, and so if you're interested in learning about anything about climate and energy, we, we cover a range of uh, topics, normally held at Wednesday at 11am, but check out our website or our Twitter feed uh, and uh, you can access uh, either be there in person, uh, webinar or what now the videos uh, once the seminars are finished. Excellent. And you can actually sign up to their newsletter and get notified when there are new seminars as well if yes. you want that. Correct. Uh, thank you so much, Nick, and uh, congratulations on finishing your PhD. Thank you. Look forward to what else you put out. Yes, well, I'm, I'm relaxing at the moment, I <laughs> yeah, can assure you. have a little break. <laughs> I've been speaking with Nick Parry, who is a PhD candidate um, and is based at the Australian German Climate and Energy College, based at the University of Melbourne. And as you heard there, there are a number of seminars that are open to the public on a weekly basis about climate change and energy, which is really fantastic. 